Welcome back to Telltale Dog, the podcast. I'm your host, certified dog trainer, Elizabeth Silverstein, and I'm speaking today with Cassie B., a certified dog trainer with Philly Unleash. Cassie also runs the super fun DIY.doggo website, which offers a theme every month, and February's theme is February, where she walks readers through teaching their dog how to fetch. And there's also a companion Instagram where you can follow along, and there's lives. It's really, really fun. Hi, Cassie. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Well, what I wanted to start off with first was your experience with dog training and how you became a dog trainer, because this is something you've done for years. It it sounds like it started when you were really young. So how did all that start? Sure. So I actually started with horseback riding. I took horseback riding lessons very young and I asked for a pony for a few years, obviously never got one. Uh, And then I shifted my attention to dogs as I started, I was like 10 years old. All of my friends were getting puppies and dogs and I had cats and they ran away. Um, So (laughs) dogs I thought might not. And then I went and got a a Shiba Inu, which if anyone listening has a Shiba Inu, you know, I just basically got a cat. So um, a fiercely intelligent dog cat is what you got. Yes. Oh man. And ferocious until the very end there. She, she made it 14 years with us in Cape on Cape Cod in New England. Um, and we started with a group class at our local like uh, VFW type thing. And I started there, it was a six week course and all of my classmates were much older than me. And so the instructor approached me after the six week course and said, I don't know if you know about this, but we have a dog specific for each group. Um, so that was actually how I got started in it was I started attending Thursday nights after school. I would go every week to this like dog club uh, and it was a bunch of us kids with very obnoxious dogs learning how to train those dogs and learn about their breeds, learn about each other's dogs' breeds. And the cool thing about 4-H is it really encourages younger younger folks to sort of pursue what they're passionate about, even if you're super nerdy. Uh, so one of the important parts every year was doing a, it, these days it would probably be a PowerPoint, I don't know, uh, but it's a five poster presentation. And so I did a deep dive into Shiba Inus and then that was my first year. And then my second year, um, I actually did a deep dive into tool use and training. And this is before I knew very much about what we're gonna be discussing today, Uh, but that actually got me onto the States level. And then we didn't make it much further than that, but that was my first taste of like really being excited to learn something and share that information with other people. Uh, And it was always with a dog by my side. So from there, I took a break. I started focusing on horses in my teenage years again, and then went to college for equine industries, found my way to New Jersey. And then once I was in New Jersey, I realized that Pennsylvania and New Jersey are very vast compared to my small hometown. And networking for horses is a lot harder than dogs in Philadelphia. There are so many. Um, So then it turned into kind of a career thing where I was very interested in getting back to doing that and found my way to Philly Unleashed. So I wanted to rewind just a little bit. So when you were a kid, you said you were about 10 and did 4-H. What decade is this? Is that okay for me to ask? You mind? Oh, sure? yeah. No, okay. totally fine. So I got Foxy when it was 2000, January 2000. 2000. So she's okay. been 21 this year. So yeah, the 2000s, early 2000s, and then we stayed in it for, I think, five or six years. I did a couple shows, like AKC level shows with her, and I was always a little miffed because she would place very well in the showmanship class, the fancy stuff we watch on Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. but then we'd get like fifth or sixth in obedience training because she's a Shiva and I'm 10. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also, we'll get into it later, but also not using what I would use today for training. Um, So we would place lower and I'd be like, but I spent hours trying to do this down stay and you're going to chase a leaf are you kidding me <laughs> right that's very yeah. interesting yeah there's a topic I'm going to want to touch on that with I, I think I know what you're talking about but I, I did want to point out to you in the 2000 or the you know the year 2000 you're fully out of the 90s era which is I think once we hit late 80s early 90s we're starting to learn a lot more about dogs and how to interact with dogs and from what I understand in the 90s which is when I was a kid trying to train my dog I had no resources I didn't have the internet I didn't have local classes I was just like holding like a tree and like telling my dog to sit I had no idea and now as I learn more I look back at the 90s if I had gone to a class it's very likely I would have been shown methods that I would be very uncomfortable using today as a trainer so it's very interesting to see that progression and it kind of sounds like in the year 2000 it was more of the balanced aspect of training and we're going to talk oh 
excuse us. <laughs> and then we'll we'll kind of talk a little bit more. But it's so fascinating that you can actually track everything by decade when it comes to dog training, pretty much. Yeah. And some of it stays, some of it goes. And it's very interesting to see what sticks around, I think. Yes, absolutely. How did you, I know you you did some agility before Philly Unleashed. How did you first get into agility and, and what is agility? Yeah. Um, so I, my catalog might start perking up too, <laughs> um, but I started with a company called Zoom Room, which is a franchise organization across the country. Um, they had opened up in Philadelphia and my cattle dog was giving me, as folks would say before they learn about some stuff, a really hard time in the city. Uh, I later learned that he was just very, very afraid of everything. He's from Kentucky. I put him in the middle of Fishtown, Philadelphia, and the world was terrifying. So about six months into owning him, I, I did everything that I knew how to do for my 4-H days with my very um, independent, courageous Shiba Inu, uh, and none of those things worked with Bugsy. So I went to this facility. I spoke to the, the singular trainer there at the time, um, and she really turned my perspective around on things when she started explaining to me how, and we'll get into this more, um, how my training methods were working against my goals and how it was not encouraging my dog to solve problems. And without problem solving skills, he wasn't really going to go much farther than where we've gotten. Um, so she encouraged me to come to an agility class. We did an introduction class for their grand opening. And it was like really like fun party style. Bugsy hadn't really been exhibiting too much reactivity at that point. Um, and then once a few months had passed, spring, summer rolled around, we started taking classes there. And through those classes, the first class, I will be very honest, um, I left crying because Bugsy was just so overwhelmed. And at that point he had found his very large bark in Philadelphia um, and was just sort of throwing, throwing his weight around at everyone and barking loudly. And I was like, whoa, this is the worst I've seen it called it was a Chris a birthday gift for me um so with that birthday gift in mind I was like any chance I could just like cash in my gift card for some squeaky toys same trainer she was like I was there I saw please come to the second class I promise it will be better I like took a deep breath went to the second class and Bugsy was a perfect little angel dog and nothing had changed didn't do anything maybe we like jumped over a skateboard in the hallway midweek or something to practice um, but we just went back to the same environment did the same thing with the same treats. And then I'll never forget this. And folks who are listening who've worked with me have heard this story, I'm sure. We walked back from the facility after that second class. I was so proud of him already. And then we walked back to our, our house and he's petrified of city buses at this point. Um, and a bus had passed and I was like, oh man, gotta throw cheese at him or something. And I, I just stood there and he looked at me and he sat down and did not panic run. And that was where it clicked for me that he needed to learn how to solve problems in order to problem solve in the real world. Um, so from that point forward, I was less interested in going because I had a cattle dog and thought he should be there and more interested because it had a direct value to my everyday life with him. Um, and our relationship just flourished from that point. After my second class, I called back and asked if they are hiring. I got a job at the front desk. I got like in quotes in trouble at the front desk because my back was always turned to the front door. I was watching the classes behind me. Um, <laughs> and so then they slowly integrated me into the schedule and I worked there for a few years before shifting to what I thought I needed to do, which was an office job, but we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. And that's actually a, a really good point too because I, I think about all the time I try to prep people for taking classes with me and I tell them like your first few classes are going to be rough. Like it has nothing to do with you and you can't compare yourself to anybody else. But if this is your first class environment is going to be hard and as much as I try to prepare people for that they're never prepared <laughs> and, um, and from that experience I tell folks I have a 10 minute rule if it gets better in 10 minutes you can stay you yeah. take a break come back if it gets worse in 10 minutes or clearly it's not going to get better just go home no one's learned we're, we're just all upset I'll, don't even worry about it like mm -hmm. we'll talk about it in our next one-on-one -on -one lesson or you can send me an email but in those cases like I've just been there so many times and I did stay for that first class and I wish I hadn't, but I'm very grateful that the trainer encouraged me to come back for that second experience because then I saw, you know, the best and the worst of it. Mm -hmm. And I was ready for whatever came next in those classes. Um, I should also mention there were less dogs in the second class, which of course would, for a reactive dog be more comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, it, for that two week period, it was a lot of learning where I didn't think I needed to learn anything. I learned a lot. Yes. 
Oh my goodness. That reminds me too of like joining Philly Unleashed. Cause I was just, I, I had just taken classes with my dog before I became a trainer at Philly Unleashed. And I, I thought I knew so much. I had taken, you know, canine good citizen. We did a level one, we did all these classes. And then I'm like, Oh, I know so much. I, I can be this dog trainer thing. This is going to be no trouble. And it is so humbling. Once you really start to learn, you see how little, you know, and how much there is to learn. Yeah. And it is a big pot of information out there and you can definitely get lost in a bunch of directions. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Well, I wanted to touch real briefly first on how did you end up with Philly Unleashed? So I actually take Bugsy and Max, my two dogs to Fishtown Animal Hospital. Uh, and Dr. Cohn, the, the leading doctor there is friends with Nicole. Uh, she takes her animals there. They horseback ride together. Um, and I had been going to my office job for about a year, a year and change at that point. And I was just like, meh when I went in for our doc, for our annual dog visit. And um, once that happened, she sort of was like, hey, how are you? And I was like, oh, I'm fine. Just, you know, doing this thing over here in customer service. And she's like, wait, you're not doing agility training anymore? And I explained, and she explained that Nicole had this horse farm in South Jersey um, and this lovely arena and all of this equipment, but really no one to teach classes. And she had just had Dean and all of that was kind of coming up. Dean was about a year and a half old when I met him. Uh, so if anyone knows Dean or has seen the videos, he was a handful from the yep. get-go. Yep. Uh, so <laughs> I, I honestly didn't expect much. I sent an email. I, I like hope for the best knowing that there was like maybe a small possibility for me to get back to dog training on weekends. Um, and then I started at the farm. I just honestly, I sent the email. I, I included my resume as you do mm -hmm. and just was very, very much looking forward to working with animals again after working with lots and lots of people, uh, working with people and animals again. And so Nicole reached out and said, I don't have you know, much right now, but we've got this weekend gig and you can come work dogs on the farm. It's called Farm Camp. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did that for a few weeks and watched some of her classes, got in trouble with my back to the front door again. <laughs> <laughs> and she just sort of allowed me to sort of teach one class one day and and it just sort of took off from there so classes were never really part of the initial introduction to Philly Unleashed I was just happy to be on a farm with farm animals and, and dogs and you know head down do work that kind of thing and then it just sort of morphed into this experience for me that I'm so grateful for but it's definitely helped me get back onto a track in life that I'm excited to be on these days so that I can work with folks like you and other folks in the industry that are working hard to change the way that we look at dogs as companions instead of just animals who have to listen to us. And the farm is such a, a special place. And I, I'm having Dana on the episode right before yours and we talk about it, just the special setup and allowing people to get paid to grow. And that was something I talked with Dana and Nicole about when I was in my interview. It's like the more work you put in, the more you get out of it, which is so special because not very many jobs are set up like that. So many jobs are set up. It doesn't matter how much you put in, you're not getting anything out of it. So it is really- right such a special unique experience one where you, you you don't really like trust it going into it you're yeah. like really this, this yeah. is what I, I do all day <laughs> uh, so I I also worked with Dana for a while um, and it was honestly her move to New England that opened up more opportunities for me at Philly Unleashed so I got a chance to Dana and I's conversations were a lot of my excitement and getting back into going to conferences and cracking open books and learning more about the industry as it is today Mm -hmm. After having taken two to three years off in between my experience at Zoom Room and coming back to Philly Unleashed. Um, so I'm super grateful for having a chance to work with Dana as well. So I also wanted to ask about DIY Doggo and how that started, why you wanted to do that, and what it is. I will be honest and say it was a bit of a back burner times pandemic panic <laughs> where I wasn't really sure what was going on last spring. Um, I had a few weeks off, which as a dog trainer is every dog trainer's worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, you just are stuck doing nothing all day, maybe walking your dog six times. And they're like, really, we're going on another walk. <laughs> <laughs> so working through that was difficult, but I've always sort of in owning Bugsy for the last nine years, tried to find ways to be as resourceful as possible 
um, I learned early on that Bugsy was not your average dog. And then in my career that many dogs are not your average dog if they're coming for training specifically. And in that, it took me a lot of coming to terms with all of the squeaky toys and rope toys that I bought for his first day and him not looking at them for a month. So then I had to go kind of into my creative box over here. Um, I like to think of myself as a, a tinkerer. I, I heard that phrase recently from Don, who I think you had on the podcast recently as well. But tinkerer, so I like to sort of take things apart, put them back together, see how they work in the meantime. And so through that, I was like, okay, well, what does he do with his food? Like when I give him a pig's ear, he loves his, his like knuckles and his pig's ear. So what does he do? And I noticed that he was a plucker. And so I started tying t-shirts up um, and putting food inside of the knots. And that would teach him to open the t-shirt. And then when he was doing that a little bit, I'd like kind of like playfully, like no, not, not begrudgingly, right? But like playfully go in and like flip the t-shirt around and let him have it, right? But like teach him that the t-shirt might move, oh no. And so that turned into me realizing that I, I didn't have to go and I, I mean, trust me, I definitely have spent so much money on so many ridiculous toys for these guys there <laughs> to the brim in the basket, right? Um, but it gave me a chance to really look at things from a different perspective and realize that I could do this myself my way and still find the results I was looking for without having to do it the way that I was taught. So going back, kind of back into that 4-H experience that I had um, where formal retrievals are something that your dog must know and things like that. And my dog wouldn't even chase a ball. Are you kidding me? Coming up with ways to sort of do it yourself, figuring out like, okay, why won't he play with the toys from the pet store? And how can I teach him the behavior required to play with those toys? Over time, you know, that, that was a, once we figured it out, we figured it out. And so we were able to add rope toys and squeaky toys in to which dissection became its own problem and there was fluff everywhere, um, but that's what makes them happy, right? I've actually been through a number of different names and stuff, which are, are all gonna make their rounds, I'm sure as blog titles here and there, or whatever the case may be. But over the last few years, each time that I went to the pet store, I sort of looked at the wall and said, how can I do this at home myself? Uh, and that included recently upcycling dog collars in the last few years from belts at the thrift store. So that was kind of my effort to remove from the fast fashion and kind of landfill industry. I have an aunt who's an um, eco-friendly fashion designer. So in conversations with her, it's kind of inspired me to make an impact there. So I would go and get leather belts from the thrift store, buy all the hardware, make it into a collar, and then that's Bugsy's wardrobe. I don't even have to think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's got a very interesting size body, neck, head, barrel. He's a 45 pound extra large dog. So <laughs> it's nice to be able to kind of customize that. And it gives me a chance to work on something that I can be proud of with him when he, at the earlier stages, was not something I was necessarily very proud of. So on top of that, I learned a lot in my kind of avenues and getting through that. We've got dog collars, we've got uh, leashes I kind of dabbled with, but there are enough leashes out there where I, I just go and purchase the ones that are strong enough for my 45 pound extra large dog. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also did some treat making for family. So that was something that I'm also going to look forward to sharing with you guys once we get into it again on our blog. But it's something that folks have always encouraged me to sell. And I fell into that trap a lot where you know, it became, instead of something that I really enjoyed doing and sharing with people, it then became a, a, a store, a job. And it wasn't anything that I was happy to do anymore. It became something that I had to do on top of everything else I had to do. So DIY Doggo is my effort to kind of bring it back to a place where I get to share with people again in a way that doesn't feel so um, necessary, but it is hopefully important. And when folks do land there, they get some level of information that they can take into their next stage with their dog and their dog relationship and maybe some training tips. Obviously knowing that there's lots of information out there and I might just be a drop in the bucket, but sharing my experience with Bugsy over the last 10 years and how he and I got from where we started to where we are now is something that in a small way, I guess is also an homage to our relationship. So full circle, something that's always kind of been there. Um, I've done a little this, a little that, a little the other thing to the point where it wasn't fun anymore. I realized why it wasn't fun and now I'm trying to make it fun again. I love that. And something that I've realized too with starting my own business and working with clients is that they'll be like, I've researched and I'm like, and I'm sure you've seen 10 different things about this one thing. 
and what I've realized as I started to share more and find um, information and content that is catered to my clients is that they're also looking to know what's what does make sense for them because every dog is so different. So you could have you know the same breed of dog and two different people, and th those different pairings need different things too, you know, just in their relationship. So it's very hard to weed through. And that's why I'm always excited to share stuff from Philly Unleashed or from yours, because I know you and I know where your heart is and, and where you bring these things. And I want to be very careful with anything else I share online because I, I'm not always sure. Like it's always, it's like, oh, well, I like this part, but that part is a little iffy. And I wouldn't recommend that for your dog because it's not applicable. So there's all of that. And I know there's so many different types of buzzwords in the industry and so many different types of things to sort through. I'd love to delve into those different buzzwords, what those things mean, and along with your journey on those things. So the first is balanced training. And it sounds like that was what you first started with when you were in 4-H. Yeah. So balanced training is an interesting phrase in the industry because when one hears balanced, they think that they're, they're going to achieve balance, right? Uh, that's at least from the, the most layman definition of balance. We're looking for synchronicity, right? We're looking for these waves to settle. But balanced training, at least how I understand it, is using all four quadrants of learning in order to teach a dog a certain skill. So being willing to step outside of positive reinforcement in a training plan and applying maybe negative punishment in cases. Um, and some other training uh, ideologies, taking that next step and going into the other corner of learning is something that um, they're not willing to do. And I can kind of understand both coming from my experiences in 4-H, I can understand why owners would take one of either road or sometimes find themselves halfway down both. The balanced training, I think is in its phrasing, interesting. There's no agreed upon definition because it all comes with some level of loaded explanation, I think. But at its most basic, information first, it to me means that it, we're using all four quadrants of learning. And that includes positive reinforcement, positive punishment, negative reinforcement, negative punishment. To gain results, I think it's important to understand what the bigger picture is. And when I was working at that level as a as a kid, as a 10-year-old, it wasn't necessarily taught to me in a way in which we were looking at the bigger picture so much as the very small thing we were looking to do in 10 minutes with string cheese and a choke chain. So in those regards, I think that it's, it's always important to know what you're doing before you move forward into that avenue. So if you have someone who's telling you they are a balanced trainer and then also saying that they're going to use lots and lots of treats, I think you should also ask what their other tools might be in their training plans, whether it's different strategies or different pieces of gear or different ideologies that they're going to use to try to achieve the goals you're looking for as a dog owner and dog guardian. So I didn't realize that there was even controversy about balanced training until I get got more into the Instagram world. It's a lot that's out there and, and people have very strong feelings about it, but I think it's also like you said, important to look at the goals and where you start. And sometimes people will start with certain tools without really understanding the dog or where what the dog's fears are, or where the dog's behaviors are coming from. And to me, and it sounds like this is what you've struggled with with 4-H is that you, when you don't really understand the foundation of the relationship or what's going on, then it can become a battle instead of a collaborative experience. A battle for sure. Um, a battle is in some cases the worst case scenario, right? Like there's blood, there's injury. <laughs> um, if at, at its lesser option though, there's there's always conflict, right? Like even at the smallest level, there's some level of conflict, whether it's in how the dog then feels, um, how the owner feels about how the dog responded, et cetera. So for me, I, I didn't, it, in, to say it in lesser terms and also more terms, if, if we want to dive into it, if I knew the things that I know now about building a relationship with dogs, <laughs> I, I can be honest and say, my Shiba Inu might not have run away from home a couple of times to chase a bunny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's the truth of it. And I just didn't know at that time. And it, I think I was trusting the guidance of someone who every week handed me a stick of string cheese and said I was doing the most right thing. Um, and I was trusting them. And so then I, it, I really, at that age, right, and with a, a breed of dog that some folks would deem difficult, 
Um, I was really looking for anything that would work and it worked in front of me. Uh, and that was all I needed at that age. And I'm lucky that I, I took a different road and really it came down to this dog teaching me that those things won't work on everybody, every doggy. So when someone is looking at balance training and, and wanting to know if that's right for their dog or looking for a balanced, you know, a trainer who, who labels themselves as a balanced trainer, what are some things to look for in that way? What are some questions to ask? Yeah, I definitely think that um, in the industries around us in dog training, uh, the most primary corner of the industry is just ownership, pet ownership, I think. Uh, but there are, you know, sports out there, high intensity sports. Um, I think that, you know, I, as a, I, I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but as a force-free positive reinforcement trainer, I really don't think that there are many places for aversive tools and training plans. Um, and I think that it's important to explore all options first before exploring that aversive method and having that conversation before enacting a training plan with your balanced trainer and setting those boundaries on both sides of the relationship. Um, working with a balanced trainer does not mean that every balanced trainer is going to start with a shock collar. Um, it means that they might be willing to introduce that to the training plan down the line or start with a shock collar. Um, so really opening up that conversation and asking questions about what, what are your philosophies around certain behavior modification. And if you don't have that verbiage in your, your relationship with your dog yet, even if you're just asking the question, what will you do if my dog doesn't sit, I think is a great place to start that conversation and understand where they're gonna start that conversation with your dog once the leash is in their hand. So again, it's, it's really up to you. And I think the most important part in exploring what type of trainer you're going to be working with is making sure you understand their training plan, their philosophy, but also what that philosophy means in regards to your relationship with your dog because you live with them 24 hours a day. And you're going to be seeing that trainer maybe a couple hours a week. So you want it to you want to make sure it melds well with your your philosophies and your everyday experiences and expectations. One of the things that has been really important to me as a trainer in Little Rock is when people say I'm looking for a trainer, I give them information on how to select a trainer, what questions to ask, and all of that stuff. Because sometimes people just like need I think I have a problem, I need a trainer, and they don't always know how or that they can think about these sorts of things. That there are a lot of different methods and a lot of different types of trainers. And I even tell people to look for personality. If my personality doesn't drive with your personality, that's okay. Even if you like my methods, but you don't like me as a person, it's like choosing a therapist or even in some ways, any other professional, if you don't jive with their values and who they are as a person, even if you like their work, it's okay to go with somebody else. I totally understand that. Yeah. I'm a, a quippy New Englander who drinks too much coffee. So if that doesn't hit well with you, then we're going to have a, a long hour together. Um, but generally speaking, um, it, it's all about, like you said, building that relationship, asking those questions. And if you feel good about the answers, or if you don't know how you feel about the answers, taking that next step and learning more information before you take action, I think is the easiest way to secure a relationship with your dog before you take the, the big dive into training. Absolutely. And then, so you mentioned that you are force-free positive reinforcement. In my opinion, I think force-free is something that in training is very achievable, uh, but in everyday life, it is something that you work hard to aim for in terms of management and modification. And what I mean by that is I walk my dog on a leash in my neighborhood, right? And if he is in a harness and a back clipping harness, which he often is, and he is walking along nicely and then you know a squirrel runs up a tree behind us and he yanks me backwards I I might have accidentally used a little force there just because I wasn't expecting that to happen so I think that it is important especially because there's this purely positive buzzword going around buzz phrase going around right now to clarify that while I identify as a force-free trainer I, what that means to me is I work very hard to reduce and hopefully eliminate the amount of negative forceful experiences my dog has in an everyday life. Knowing that he is a, a bit of a Tasmanian devil dog sometimes, and he kind of puts himself in some sticky situations. If that ever happens, we then the next day, the next week, include that in our training and, and shift our priorities based on what happened. 
through that uh, less than awesome experience. That is also very much hand in hand with maybe conflict, like like trying to eliminate conflict and doing more collaborative experiences instead of just like barreling through. Yeah, and I think my apprehension and kind of like 1000% committing to that, that term and that phrase is I am what would be called in the industry a crossover trainer. So I did, you know, I mentioned earlier, I did use a choke chain on my Shiba. And when I started with Bugsy, that's what I knew. So that's where I started. I was not always a certified dog trainer. I was just a dog owner with a very, very upset dog. So through that, I understand the impact I've had in my training over time. And knowing that impact, learning more about that impact, I'm choosing not to use those tools anymore. Um, So crossover trainer, and I guess, like I said, like you also said, my apprehension is that it is still a, it's coming from a place of how do I avoid conflict? Mm-hmm. And while conflict is on my brain, I feel like I'm still not totally there, but I'm, I'm working really hard to be. So. And I want to talk briefly about this too. So we, we talked about balance training. We touched on force-free, but I wanted to talk a little bit about just trying to avoid conflict and working with your dog is not the same as having like this, no structure or no boundaries. It's about choices, right? It's about working with and having your goals and what you need and then seeing what your dog needs and and what they have and and finding ways to work together in true conversation and relationship, not just, you know, flowers and rainbows either. I think it is a little bit of everything. I think flowers and rainbows are super important. It brightens up the room. Um, But in all seriousness, I I agree with you. It is really about dismantling. And I I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here and what you were planning on, but it's really about dismantling that dominance theory, that idea that like, I need to be the, the sole proprietor of resource and information for this animal that I expect to live with me for the next 10 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is unrealistic in any relationship to expect that level of authority to work sustainably. So that I think is what's really important to me. And in any of these conversations with any trainer, I think that's really what you want to focus on, even in their handling of your dog. What type of relationship is the trainer willing to have with your dog? What type of relationship is the trainer willing to foster with you and your dog? And I think the the trust that is to, is hopefully being included in those conversations with owners and trainers is that the, the trainer is really taking their experience and working with other animals, other dogs, and seeing your case, because that's what it is. It's a case saying, oh, this this is why this is happening, and then giving the owner that information, and then hopefully helping. It's I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's about helping the human understand that that's not going to work for them. And the dog is going to keep doing what the dog has been doing if they keep doing what the human's been doing. So that to me, I think is the easiest way that I would kind of, I I would do my best to rainbows and butterfly that. Right. And then at the end of the day, I would just be like, okay, (laughs) Um, you can give my way a shot or you can keep doing what you've been doing and let me know how that works for you in three weeks. My, my inbox is open. Um, and try to keep that that open conversation but like not really letting my guard down about it either something that I feel very strongly about is uh, not using aversive gear in group classes that's something that is is just important to me so I've definitely had those conversations with folks in person via email via text and they're not fun they're not easy but you just have to trust that you know as a trainer what you're doing is in the best interest of both the human and the dog and kind of relay that as many ways as you have to until the the human gets it because the dog will get it as soon as you show up with cheese it's true and it's really about so the cheese isn't isn't about bribing the dog either it's about building a relationship in a predictable way one of the things that i'm able to win dogs over pretty quickly is because my movements are predictable and my responses are predictable and once the dog can trust that all of a sudden their world opens up because they're like, all right, I know that if I do A, I get B, right? It's very predictable. And that's what training really is of these consequences and working with the dog in that way. But if I were to show up and I'm unpredictable and my unpredictability is followed with pain, then all of a sudden that relationship looks very different too. Yeah. I think that that's definitely an important note to hit on and something that kind of comes up in discussing that is one thing that I find trainers sometimes fall into is talking and we're not doing it here but like just kind of like going off of this Uh, we get really locked in on trying to help those dogs in those situations but forgetting that humans are humans with their own emotions too and helping them understand that you know I get it like barking 
six hours. That's a lot. Like I would have a headache and little patience too. But again, going back to that, here's why. And are you comfortable with this being why and how? And if you're comfortable with it being why and how, I'm not where I am, right? Based on the information. Um, and that's how you and I are going to move forward in this training relationship together. But that's exactly what you described, right? So you come in, the dog can predict awesome, amazing stuff whenever Liz shows up. And then when the owner comes in, you know, I always think of the videos online of who did that, who, who got into the trash. That sucks, right? The dog looks forward to their owner coming home and then 50% of the time the owner blows them off or worse, right? Because they're excited and they jump on them or stuff like that. So I think that's, it's definitely um, an interesting, it's interesting. It all, it all comes into a three-part understanding and learning that the human has to understand that their behavior has consequences as much as their dog's behavior can change through predictable consequences. We're touching on a lot. And these are big concepts. No, I'm such a nerd. I'm so uh, No, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> but I, I think it's also helpful for people to see because often people think dogs simple. They just like, they need walks and, and food and water and that's it, right? But dogs are- It so means sit at every corner. <laughs> yes, yeah. And it, it, but there's so, there's so much complexity to it. And this is where it blew my mind once I actually started learning and, and getting into the weeds of it is that you will never run out of things to learn about and you will never run out of the nuances and why one dog might have a behavior in a situation could be a completely different reason or a different behavior in another situation and like fear and all of that. So it's, it's just, it's a lot, but this is great. I, I nerd out about it too. And I know, you know, a lot more than me. So we talked about a, a bunch already. We talked about balance training and, and your experience with that. We talked about you being a crossover trainer, and these are definitions I'm going to put in the description and in the blog post. And we talked a little bit about force free, but I want to develop, delve into that a little bit more. How would you define force free and fear free? Yeah. So fear free actually has an entire certification program. Um, it was originally and primarily geared towards veterinary offices and in a way in which vets knowing that veterinary experiences for animals are usually one of their most stressful experiences in life. How can we reduce the amount of stress in animal experiences in order to get a full read on their physical, mental, emotional, physiological health? So that's something that I think is uh, worth, worth linking to in the blog as well as the fear-free certification program. Um, it's definitely on my list of things to get to hopefully this year. But as we know, the last couple, couple months have been total curveballs all over the place. Um, so once it fits into my calendar, it'll be there. I'm so excited to look into that. Force-free is a little different. It's not exactly the same. Fear-free, we're looking at the dog's emotional and behavioral state together. So we're really looking at whether the dog is afraid, whether the dog is um, increased in stress response, if their stress is being reduced by certain efforts. Sometimes supplements like Adaptal will be used and things like that, pheromones and things to help engage the, engage the dog in the environment in a way that's soothing, thinking like going to a spa with aromatherapy. Imagine your dog going into a vet's office like that. Uh, now, the cool part about the program is they did start introducing it to trainers as well. So I already talked about that, but the force-free is anyone can really go for that, right? Anyone can, can work towards being force-free and, and working towards that ideology, I think is the difference. Fear-free is a certification and force-free is a lovely ideology that includes, as I mentioned, just removing force from your relationship and from your dog's daily life as, as often as you're able and making sure that you're coming at it from a Lima approach was one of the things that um, I wanted to make sure I touched upon today. But the Lima approach is, is kind of a little bit of everything we've talked about, where you start with the medical side, you start with the nutritional and physiological. So fear-free, go to, go to a fear-free vet, mm -hmm. see if your dog's feeling okay. And then the second one is antecedent arrangement, which is just a fancy way of saying what's going on in the environment. So then positive reinforcement training comes in and positive reinforcement is just one of four quadrants which we talked about earlier, force-free positive reinforcement would mean things like removing the leash to practice stay work so that, you know, there's no restraint involved. Cooperative care is a, a lovely uh, corner of this topic where you're teaching your dog to tell you when it's okay to start certain procedures, whether it's grooming, vet visits, or even just wiping their paws off after coming in from a walk and things like that. So engaging again with the animal in a way that's conversational was a, love, a great word that you used earlier. Um, and making sure that it's something that you're coming at from the canine's perspective, the dog's perspective, 
whereas, you know, being a positive reinforcement trainer without that underlying consideration might mean that you are using treats, but maybe also not considering the dog's perspective and how or why they're receiving the treats or um, how their behavior produces that reward. You might be using it as a lure instead and things like that. Yeah, and treats can also not be reinforcing for a dog. Some dogs don't want treats or they can't take treats in a certain environment or distraction-wise, or they would prefer affection or praise or both. And yeah. that, was, that I took an agility course um, when I was still in New Jersey and the trainer there, and this is while I'm a trainer, and she's like, you need to praise your dog because I was very much in that mindset of like, all right, this, we're going to do the things, no feedback to my dog. I give him cheese, but you know, that's it. And once I started praising him, he got so happy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have to laugh with you there. Cause I take agility class every Monday night with Bugsy and my instructor, I'm going to share this with her. So she hears this, we tease each other. And something that I kind of joked about is I have my obedient, my traditional obedience brain. Mm-hmm. And she's got her dog sports brain. And we both come from the same like intention, the same spot, the same everything, right? We're both positive reinforcement trainers. We're both working to the end goal of completing a course without error. But same thing, right? It's just like, okay, now tell them to keep going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, but what does that mean? And it, it means keep going. You're doing the right thing. But coming back from that, like sit means sit mentality. Like even to this day, I catch myself having to loosen up a little bit with my own animals and kind of taking my own advice here and there and remembering that you can use different things in different situations. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned the touch and that's something that I I talk about all the time. Bugsy is a very type A dog. I try to be a very type A person uh, and we both don't enjoy being touched when we're working. Mm -hmm. Um, So if he's on task, then he's not gonna, he does not enjoy being pet. And if I am at the computer and you have a question, like, please wait until I'm in the kitchen pouring another cup of coffee before you ask. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in that regard, like being interrupted when you're, you're really focusing on something, even though you guys snuggle on the couch for six hours most of the day, taking those levels of uh, extra thought, I think, is where the force free comes into play in these considerations for sure. Well, the last thing, alpha and dominance theory and touching on that, there's a lot of feelings out there, both from trainers and owners of like, well, I need to be alpha, I need to be dominant. And this is something I hear pretty much almost every week as a trainer as well. How would you define it? What are your thoughts on it? And how do you maneuver with it? I will be honest and say that if someone comes into our initial consultation and they're using words like alpha, dominant, submissive, beta, um, I'm very quick to explain my own theory around those things, which is that um, it just doesn't, as we talked about a little bit earlier, it just doesn't exist in a, an everyday household. Um, it's not a sustainable way to look at navigating two different worlds, you know, between a human and a dog. If you're not even in the same species pool, right, and you're not working to understand what that other animal is trying to communicate, then why do we expect the animals to work to understand what we're trying to communicate? And that's something that I feel very passionately about is if you're looking to receive engagement from your dog, you need to also engage with them. And by that, I mean positively, right? Like you, you teach them the sociability that you expect of them rather than sort of dismissing it with, that's too much. The alpha dominance theory has been usually I just say google it right alpha dominance and pet dogs Um, but what it comes down to is it's just disproven in in pet canines Um, there's no there's no pack in a pet canine there's no there's no alpha (laughs) there's just no alpha there's behavior and Mm -hmm. there is a dynamic between behavior like for example sometimes my 17 year old dog gets one over on my 10 year old Sometimes my 10-year-old gets one over on the Mm 17-year-old. And by getting one over, I mean, like, they get to the cookie that fell to the floor first, right? So which one of them is dominant? The one who gets the cookie first? Like, how do we define that? And so that, I think, is kind of, I don't spend much time on it with owners, to be honest, because I think it's very important for them to find their, their own understanding in that. But I'm always willing to provide resources for those types of things there um I, I should have written the uh, folks names down but there are a couple science documents out there science-based documents that I'll share about okay. dismantling the dominance theory um, I'm very bad at remembering folks names so usually they have a dog that I can remember but <laughs> yeah 
Same. I will know every dog's name in class. Try to do the people's working on it. But um, if you send me the links or anything, I will include that in the blog post and in the description yeah. box when I post the podcast. Awesome. I really, uh, but I always go science first. No, that's fantastic. I love Dr. Patricia McConnell's take on this because there is dominant behaviors like you mentioned and there's more submissive behaviors and and you know what that means exactly can be a little contested but I like to look at it as like a dominant behavior like grabbing the cookie I really want that cookie or a submissive behavior like laying on their back when playing like hey let's play or you know please don't hurt me so there are always these different behaviors but we don't we don't have to do those behaviors to our dogs either right I don't think it has a place in training and in relationship building. Yeah. Uh, that's for dogs to use with each other. And I think if we're, we're taking their last little bit and saying, hey, I know how to do that too. Mm-hmm. We're just lying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like submissive roles are not, they, they just don't have a place in training. Yeah, 100%. I, I do, one of my favorite things to talk about with people is like with puppies where there's like some advice going around is if you squeak like, the puppies litter mates squeak, then they'll stop biting you. And from what I've encountered with my clients is that's never the case. And I'm like, yeah, because you've just turned yourself into a giant squeaky toy and they think it's real fun that you made that noise. Yeah. Or yelling no when you're, when your dog's barking, um, like going, no, stop it. And it's like, oh, look, we've got two barking dogs. Yeah. Oh, are you? Yeah. You're concerned about this noise too. Great. Join me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think for, for the alpha dominance theory, it's just one of those things where you can always find information that supports your argument, but check the date, check the resource, uh, see if there's any updated information out there regarding the topic. Um, and I re- always remember that these are pet dogs that we're talking about in most cases, they're pet dogs. Um, so we're not talking wolves, we're not talking feral dogs, we're talking pet dogs in a house that are looking for socialization, that are looking for engagement. And the more we remove that from their experience, especially as primary humans in their life, the, the more undesirable behavior we actually end up with, believe it or not. So how would you just define positive reinforcement and why did you decide to pick that as your primary kind of driver in your training? So I, I will be honest and say that I cheat with a little T-chart to keep it in my brain. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll go through all four of them just to explain like why positive reinforcement is the method I chose. Because mm-hmm. I do think it's important as as this whole conversation has been to sort of know all of it before you make that choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because then if you do fall down, you know, the wrong trail and you're not sure how you got there, you can learn about how you got there and find your way back again. Mm -hmm. Um, So positive reinforcement is when you're adding something pleasant to increase behavior. So for example, if you want something to happen again, you want your dog to sit more than once ever in life, you tell them to sit once and you add something awesome. Like we mentioned affection, praise, uh, Bugsy really enjoys snacks. So I pop a snack in. Um, If I get him up and on his feet again, he might sit again. And the reason he's going to do that is because something positive was added to his experience after that behavior. Um, So positive reinforcement is the addition of something awesome to get it again. Now, negative reinforcement is when you remove something to increase the behavior. So if you think of loose leash walking as an example, I always use this one because I'm also a stickler for leash tops and creating tension in the leash. So if you use loose leash walking as an example um, and the dog is pulling ahead of you and then you eventually stop walking and then the dog stops pulling, you're gonna keep walking again. Um, And what you're doing is you're removing the tension to reinforce good walking behavior. So instead of adding cheese, and we'll go back and I'll say for walking. So you want your dog to walk nicely with you. Your dog takes a step forward on the leash. You give them a piece of cookie. Uh, That would be positive reinforcement. Um, Your dog is walking nicely on the leash and they walk too far. You stop. They stop. You keep going. That would be negative reinforcement. Um, Then we also have positive punishment where you're adding an aversive. That one's most commonly known as leash corrections and leash pops and things like that, um, where you're popping the collar uh, or telling your dog with some level of force um, that they are not doing what you want them to do. And that is not going to stop until what you want to happen happens. Mm -hmm. Um, So if your dog is taking a step forward too far, you pop, you pop, you pop until the dog comes back to you, then that would be um, positive punishment. You're adding an aversive to decrease the pulling. 
And then the last one is negative punishment, which is removing something pleasant. It's kind of a combination of the negative reinforcement and the positive punishment, again, in which you are, um, you're gonna stop walking. But if you think of the dog ahead of you in the leash correction situation, in using, uh, I'm sorry, in using negative punishment, the dog would be behind you and you're just waiting for them to make the wrong move and then kind of stopping popping and moving forward again, so delaying that. Um, in any case, to answer your question briefly, <laughs> is the other three sound disinteresting to me after I learned what I was doing with them. I was told that if then, and to me, that made enough sense at a very young age and with results in front of me. Uh, again, trusting the professional that I was working with before I learned my own information. And then I learned that it's if, then, because. And I realized that a lot of the things that I was told were working, did work, were also working against me in a lot of other ways. Um, so I, of course, in having the choke chain string cheese experience and having Bugsy be a reactive dog without my knowledge and experience early on, I used a lot of leash corrections and I didn't realize that in using leash corrections, I was making him more concerned with the stimuli in his environment instead of less concerned with the stimuli in his environment, which was my goal. So instead of saying, hey, scary things happen and something awesome quickly follows, I was saying that dog across the street barks at you and then I'm gonna make you sit stay buddy. And that wasn't cool. It wasn't cool of me. And I didn't know until I mentioned I went to Zoom room for my consultation. And I was like, yeah, this is what I do. Someone told me once. And that trainer, um, Lee McKinley, was actually like, okay, well, imagine if every time you walked by someone who said hi to you, someone pulled on your ponytail, you wouldn't say hi to that person. And I was like, fair. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that is absolutely true. Um, and that's kind of where I stopped using that and started to try to find other ways to get the goal behavior and trying other methods, I really found that the behavior most often increased if I was using positive reinforcement without alternative kind of symptomatic results on top of it. He, he um, much like we talked about the agility class with your dog, uh, he found more interest in what was going on because I was offering him more valuable information than uh, pain or you know suppression and that kind of thing, which, Punishment works, you know, it, it works or it wouldn't be there. It's just not something that I'm choosing because I, I too have the choice on how I wanna engage with my animal. Um, I don't wanna include punishment in my relationship with my dog. He already lives a life that he didn't ask to, you know, he was from the woods in Kentucky and now he lives on quarter acre in New Jersey. <laughs> um, so I love him to pieces and I want him every day to know that. And kind of stemming back to your, inconsistency in other humans dogs looking for that consistency um, we want we want our dogs to be able to predict good things when we show up and i learned quickly in ditching the rest that that was the easiest way to get those results yes and it helps your dog actually be able to make better choices too so one thing i've been calling repressive training which i i've seen a lot in the south is where we stop the dog with uh, the punishment. So you can stop the behavior, but they're also not learning how to function in the world or make good choices or how to make the correct choices either. And you see a lot what's called, you know, um, learned helplessness, right? Or shut down dogs where they're not doing anything. So they're not causing you any trouble, but they're also not necessarily okay either. They're not living a fulfilled life at all. And I think that's the biggest corner that the industry has turned recently is understanding our dogs as things that live their own lives instead of, you know, something in the corner that we feed twice a day and walk sometimes. I think that's something that I'm most excited about, but you're exactly right. There are definitely folks out there who still believe in a, a control power relationship with an animal. And when one person is doing most of the instructing, one person is doing most of the communicating, one person is doing most of the this, that, the other, the other one does eventually just sort of fall back. In a lot of the cases I've seen in kind of older dogs who are coming in for training and they've tried this, that, the other, it's it's hard for me because we'll get to, okay, so what did you do when that dog was jumping previously? What what was your strategy there? And in some cases it was an e-collar or it was a leash pop like we talked or yelling at the dog and using a firm tone and saying that worked. And that, you know, it, it works in that moment because punishment works. But again, it's just something that I don't want to do for my dog. And 
when I call that dog over to say hi to me and try to build my relationship with that dog as his new trainer, the dog's apprehensive. Mm-hmm. Doesn't want to come over to me. Um, and I think that when I started seeing that, that change, positive change in my dog, he was willing to go see my roommates more and things like that. Uh, and also seeing that impact in a lot of my clients, I became very passionate about making sure that every time your dog is awake, <laughs> they're having a good time or asleep. Honestly, my dog lives with a lot of anxiety so that they get uninterrupted sleep sometimes too, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but kind of like filling their cup. I love the, um, the doggy graphic from Lily Chin, uh, filling your emotional cup um, and making sure that, you know, as much as we rely on our dogs to hit our needs for us, we also fill their needs as well. I'm going to add in some resources to this and I'll add the ones that you added in. And for, for per, me personally, my criteria is typically what sort of experience or degree or certification does the person have for those resources? Is their learning ongoing? Do major organizations like the American Veterinarian Society of Animal Behavior provide study-based support? So something I've noticed in, for example, my breed-specific legislation research is that all major organizations like the AVS and shelters and all have clear, concise documentation that show BSL is not effective. So we have all that information for dominance and alpha theory as well. So I'll, I'll add in yours because a lot of times we're just looking for confirmation bias, right? We're just looking for information yeah. that supports what we think or we already believe. So it's important to look at those other things. And, and, and I know I'm talking to the choir with you, but just for anybody listening no, I, for that. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally understand. There's also a really good one now that you've mentioned a couple of the ones you've got. There's a really good one that talks about the impact of using aversives and animal training that came out, I think in the last six months or so. Um, I will find that and give that to you as well, where it just discusses, you know, the different types of training that you can use and how that affects the learner, which in this case is the dog overall. Um, So I'll share that information with you too. Another organization that I really respect and look to them for position statements on certain topics in training is the International Association of Animal Behavior, the IAABC. Uh, If you go to their website, they have a number of position statements on the use of certain tools, certain training methods, um, and they have a, a wonderful definition of the least intrusive, minimally aversive Lima training method that um, our certification, our CCPDT certification requires us to sign an oath on and abide by. Um, I think those are some great things to check out. If you're looking to dive into this for sure, click those links. This has been Telltale Dot, the podcast with your host, Elizabeth Silverstein, certified dog trainer in Central Arkansas, and my guest today, Cassie B., also certified trainer in the Philadelphia area. Music has been provided by Jim Chiago of 7 Second Chance. Find more of his work on iTunes and Spotify. And stick around for After the Music for some final advice from Cassie. Cassie, before we sign off completely, what are some questions that you think would be good for dog owners when they're researching these methods or looking at dog trainers to ask? I think that some of the questions that you want to keep in mind starting a relationship with a trainer would be making sure you know how they're going to handle any type of behavior modification involving frustration from your dog or fear. Um, So if you know that your dog is very excited when people walk into the house and you don't want them to jump on people anymore. Um, Are they going to come up with an alternative behavior for that? Or are they simply going to try to stop the jumping? Um, And those are some things that are going to help you know if you've done your research and the types of reinforcement um, that you're either going to work well with that person because they are going to give you tools and protocols to practice at home. I think that when you're looking for a trainer to help you with your dog training journey, some of the important questions to ask would include uh, what type of training do you utilize? And if they say that they're a balanced trainer, for example, um, ask them to explain what that means to them, because there are different perspectives. There are different, just as many different dogs as there are out there, there are many different training methods, ideologies. Um, I like to tell folks there are six different ways to teach a sit, and I'm only going to use three of them with you today. Uh, So if you have someone who's using the method you're least comfortable with first, uh, then I would either ask them to explain why they're doing that to, you know, gain understanding or understand that that might not be the person that you're best fit to work with. If you are comfortable with going into those conversations, knowing that it's as much your responsibility to advocate for your dog as it is the trainer's responsibility to help make that progress. 
I think that you'll have a wonderful opportunity to learn more about your dog. Um, but it's really important to come at it from what will my dog learn in our training sessions and how will that help my dog and I in our everyday experiences because that's where training really should be applied. Um, training is not, it should not be forever. Um, I think training is important to keep forever, um, but you don't always wanna stay in the same stage for you know six months to a year. We wanna make sure we know how the going to place and staying is going to help when folks enter my home if the problem I'm working with on my dog, working with my dog on, is jumping on people, um, if they are not using that as a protocol for you, then how will their protocol work in your use case? Um, and is that something that you can feasibly, realistically practice two times a day, few times a week, in order to help your dog succeed? Um, or are you really relying on training to work only in those training sessions? Uh, if it's the second one, then we might be best suited for looking for someone who's gonna help you in a board and train situation to install certain behaviors and carry them on at home, um, which is the farm that I work at in South Jersey through Silly Unleashed, um, or making sure that you can dedicate at least six weeks, two months to dog training and really commit to the way that your trainer is informing you to do it as long as you feel comfortable about it.